Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you so much for joining us again on another Sunday morning as we continue this first month in our third year. And man, the brothers that I've had have been so dynamic in terms of the conversations that we've been been having. Um, This thing, 2024, this year coming up, this is going to be... I believe that this is going to be an evolution year, particularly for black men. And so I think that even for me personally, um, this year for me is going to be about elevating my voice. And so I've been in this work for a long time, operated and been the CEO of Fathers Incorporated. 2024 represents our 20th year. So we're celebrating 20 years of operation um, this year. And what, what I've decided to do is I speak so much on the subject matter, whether it is responsible fatherhood, black manhood, black fatherhood, black men in general, and all those things associated with both of those. But one of the things that I don't share a lot is my journey, right? And those things that I have experienced in doing this work that are very personal to me as an individual, but very uh, specific to me as a black man, Um, particularly someone who's driven, who's passion driven, who is hungry for wanting to do this work for my community and for my people. And so that's the driver for me in 2024. And every person that I've had so far this year has been in that theme, which is why I know God has me in this space about the elevation of my voice so that people who are behind me who are also mission driven and ready to do this work and this calling that God has called them to do and this passion that um, that God continues to fire in their belly, they understand what that looks like and the burden of carrying passion. Like we don't talk a lot about the burden of passion. Passion is not this thing that God, it's not a talent. Passion is different from a talent. Talent is a tool of passion. When you have passion, passion is a driver. Passion is that thing that allows people to know who you are and what you are about without you even opening your mouth. Um, The tools that you get to do that can come from all kinds of places. So if you wonder how a guy like me started off Um, In working with small not-for-profit agencies, spent 15 years as a radio DJ, was a DJ since I left high school, went to school for accounting and computer science, came out of that, was an accountant on Fifth Avenue in New York City, came up to New York State, went to college at a later age, and did a whole bunch of, and published a newspaper for 12 years, and how did he get to the space of working with black men and fathers? That's because God knew he needed that much time with me to establish my tools for the passion he was going to open up in me and the work that he was going to propel me into. So everything that I've learned throughout my life has been of a service to the passion that pushes me, and I believe that that's true for the gentlemen that I've done, that I've spoken to so far that have been on I Am Dad podcast and this brother today. 
And so this young man today that we're going to be talking to, um, you know, and that's the other thing I want to do this year. I want to be, I want to tell more stories. And I need black men and I need our black women and I need our folks that are interested in, in supporting and, and, and building the capacity of, of black people to kind of hear our stories. We don't do enough of telling our stories. We tell our ills and we tell our pains, but we don't tell our stories and people need to hear our stories. And so Jermaine Wong, I came across him. I was surfing one night and was watching some things and this video popped up in front of me and I heard this brother talking about um, live and learn and he was expressing themselves and then he kind of laid on me this, this incident that he had gone through with the loss of his elder son and we're gonna talk about that and dig in. But I watched it and man, I cried, I cried. I, wa I watched it two or three times and I cried, I cried. And then I went back and I wanted to know more about him. And then I was like, you know what? Let me just reach out to this brother. Let me flip him something and see if he'd be willing to come on and talk to me. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna hopefully, uh, we're gonna get him to tell um, that story. But I wanna build on some of the things that he does in addition to that that really said to me that this was, first of all, an unfortunate situation, tragic situation, but in God's um, wisdom for our lives, if we are going to accept any of his word, we have to accept all of his word. And if we truly believe that all things happen for the goodness of what God intends for us. We even have to filter the tragedies of our lives in a way that somehow those things are part of our journey. As tragic as they are, right? We have to accept that something may not be good of it, but may be good as a result of it. And so I want to talk about that, but Jermaine is a, um, he's renowned for his captivating storytelling proudness, which is why when I stop talking, we're going to listen to him. He's an award-winning filmmaker, which you know is at my heart because I'm a, documenta a documentarian. He's an educator. He's a spoken word artist, which is something I would love to be, but I don't have the talents to be. Um, and he specializes in emotionally charged dramas that resonate deeply with audiences. And so that's the piece about him that I really, really love because I know he's a deep thought thinker. In addition to that, he is dedicated um, to being what he called a learn to live activist. And he's a charismatic keynote speaker. And he does a lot. His bio is going to be at the bottom you know, of our podcast coming up after this is done. But Jermaine, and in addition to that, the brothers across the pond. Um, he's in the UK. And so um, welcome to I Am Dad podcast. How you doing, sir? How you doing, Kenneth? It's, um, I'm, I'm honored to be here. I mean, I've been watching, I've been looking at your stuff on LinkedIn for a while. Um, so when you reached out to me, first of all, when I saw that you responded to my, to the piece of content that I put out, um, I was glad that you responded. And then when you, re when you reached out to me, I was just like, yes, there, there is no way that I'm not coming on um, I Am Dad podcast to come and speak with you because the things that you're doing, what God is using you to do is amazing. And I'm just, I'm glad that I'll be able, I'm glad that I will be able to share some of my story with you and some of your listeners as well. So 
Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Kenneth. Thank you so much. So if you listen to any of our podcasts, you know I start off with one question because I think the question is important for our audience. And it also gives people context as to how they think and why they think and how this particular piece of information impacts their lives. And the question is simple. What's your daddy's story? My daddy's story? Yeah. Uh, Of my dad? It could be of your dad or as you being a dad or as both. All right. So my daddy's story. All right. I, I, I will share a story of me being a dad. Okay. And it was, I tell this to people every time they ask me, my relationship with God became super real, hyper real with this one incident that I had with my son. So I was away. I went away to Hong Kong on a, on a speaking trip. And on my way back from Hong Kong, I had this piece of memorabilia, right? And I had it on the side of the windowsill. And I remember telling my son, he was about five, he was about five or six years old at the time. And I remember telling my son, son, do not touch that because it's precious. It's something I got from abroad. And, you know, I wanted to remind me of the time that I had in Hong Kong. And he, like every good little boy, he was like, yes, daddy, I won't touch it. I leave the room, Kenneth. And 60 seconds later, I hear plink, plink, smash. So I go upstairs. And you can imagine what I see. I, I see that very same piece of memorabilia that I told my, specifically told my son, do not touch this. It's smashed on the floor to pieces. So I look to my son and normally he knows when he's going to get into trouble. And normally he, he will start crying before I even get upstairs, but he wasn't crying this time. And I was wondering why. And the reason why he wasn't crying was because he had cut himself in the whole incident. Wow. He had sliced his... He had sliced his thumb and there was blood gushing out. And normally, if he had grazed himself, he would be crying down the place. But I think he was so scared of seeing how much blood was coming out and he was equally scared of what my reaction would be. So at this point of the story, I normally tell people, what do you think, once I saw the blood from my son's hand, what do you think my reaction was? It was no longer, it was no longer, oh, you're in trouble, son. It was all about how do I, how do I fix my son? How do I attend to that? How do I attend to that injury? So I scoop up my son. I had to take him to a and I had to take him to a hospital and they had to give him some stitches. So we go to the hospital, he gets the stitches and we come home. And, you know, I'm, I'm doting on him. I'm loving him. You know, I'm reassuring him that, you know, everything's okay. I don't really care about, I don't really care about the memorabilia. I don't really care about what happened. I just care about whether you're okay. And I'm putting him to bed, Kenneth. And I'm stroking his head, right? And he's asleep. And I say to my son, I whisper to him, I love you, son. And I'm not expecting him to respond because his eyes are closed and I think he's asleep, but I say, I love you, son. And with his eyes closed, Kenneth, he whispers back, At that moment, my, my heart melted because I know that he meant it because he's half asleep. He doesn't know what he's saying, but that was the natural response from his heart. I loved you too, Dad. And at that moment, the Lord spoke to me, Kenneth. At that moment, the Lord told me, if I could just get you to love me from your heart, 
is there anything that you wouldn't do for this boy right now? And at that moment, when he said, when he responded the way he did, that the world could be ending, Kenneth, and I would be covering, I would be hovering over my son mm. like this. And at that moment, I realized how much the Lord loved me. How much the Lord desires our genuine love for him. Not a pretense love, not a, not a, I'm going to church because I need to go to church. Not I have to love. Not I have to do this because God requires me to do this, but a natural response, a natural I love you response. My son taught me that powerful mm -hmm. lesson that day. And he continues, and he continued continue to to highlight God's love for me when I became a father of that wow. boy. You know, so that's my dad. That's my daddy's story. That's yeah. profound in the sense that, you know, my, and I just give you a touch of it, just one element of it, because it's re relative to relevant to what you just um, said. And that is, you know, I didn't meet my dad until I was 23 years old. And so when I finally met him, um, you know, we never really connected, connected like, people should connect and then mm -hmm. some years after that we just kind of disconnected again and then he passed away and so I often tell the story that um, my father died with all of the answers to my questions you know with him wow but I have mm -hmm. four girls and my wife and I had what we describe as our surprise blessing you know we thought we were done and God was like nah bruh I was like, I got another, I got some more lessons for you to learn, right? I know <laughs> that's a dad right. girl, right? And so, but, and you've done well with your girls. Um, but now I need you to know what it feels like to raise yourself. Like he didn't even say to me, <laughs> it's time for you to figure out how to raise a boy. So I need you to kind of understand mm -hmm. what it is to raise yourself. And when I heard that, it was kind of like, well, I heard it, but I didn't hear it. And I was like, all right, you know, what does this mean? And all throughout, my son is now 14 years old, or 15, he just turned 15. And all throughout these lives, just all throughout his life, just like that moment for you, I've had these moments with him where as I'm speaking to him, he's speaking to the little boy in me. Right? That I love you wasn't yep. for you as grown Jermaine. That message was for the little boy in you who needed to hear someone love them. Right? And so it's interesting when you think about yep. our boys, right? And being boy dads, right? And trying to raise these kids that in some spaces <laughs> we try to vicariously live through them, right? He's 15 years old. He's just a little over six feet. He's playing AAU basketball. He's a beast on the floor. And you want him to dunk and you want him to do all these things because you could never do them, right? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so you're leaning in, you're leaning in, and you're leaning in. When you think about being a dad, particularly to a boy, like what is it about raising boys for you that actually strengthens you? What strengthens me is I'm a, I get the opportunity, like you said, to pour myself in with the hindsight of the mistakes that I can leave behind. You get what I'm saying? I get to, 
I get to steer, I get to steer a pathway or guide a pathway void of daddy mistakes. I guess the, the challenge with that is, is to, was to get him to understand that I'm trying to make you avoid mistakes. Because what he, what he wanted to do a lot of the time is, well, you made that mistake. Why, why are you not giving me the freedom to make my own mistakes? <laughs> you used to smoke that. So why are you getting onto me for, onto me for, for smoking? That's exactly why I'm getting onto you for smoking. Because you don't see me smoke now because I've, I've learned that lesson, but I've had to learn that lesson the hard way. And I don't want you to have to learn the lesson the hard way. I want you to, I want you to, to learn from my mistake. I don't want you to have to make your own mistakes. And you know, sometimes that's the challenging things because when young men, young boys, our young, our young boys, they get to a place where they want to test the status quo they want to create their own culture. And the best way for them to create their own culture is to rebel against mm. the, the status quo culture. It's to rebel against the culture that's in the house. And a lot of the time I had to learn myself, a lot of the time I had to learn, this is not, though it may seem like my son's being rude or disrespectful, I've had to learn through study and through reading that is not always rude and disrespectful. Sometimes he's just exercising his new way of thinking and Absolutely. there is nowhere else for him yeah, to exercise yeah. that. And you know, the other thing too is when you think about this, like mm -hmm. our role as parents is to raise our children to be independent, not dependent. And the moment that they show levels mm -hmm. of independency, we counter that with trying to make them dependent. It's a really, it's a crazy thing. It's like, I want you to be voiceful in the world. I want yeah. you to stand up for yourself. I want you to speak your mind. I want you to like, don't back down. I want you to do, and as soon as they do it, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what are we doing here? Like. <laughs> I didn't mean, I didn't mean me. I didn't, I didn't mean, I didn't mean for you to exercise those skills on me. You go and exercise those skills on someone else, but where else are they going to exercise? Where, there is no other safety right. blanket for them to exercise those skills. And that is one of that was a tough lesson I had to learn with my son that you know the 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 principles I'm the principles that I want him to display his first point of call to display those principles is going to be on me and the thing is he's going to call me out when I'm not living up to the same principles and that is that is another one of the hard things that's another one of the lessons that he taught me how God is expecting me to to behave. <laughs> Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. And if you're gonna discipline that, if you're gonna discipline him for this, don't be upset when I discipline you for the same exact thing under a different package. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah. He um, you know, the interesting thing, you know, about him, about KJ, you know, is he is in in addition to that, he's smart and he's intelligent. And he's logical, like our children are today, right? They bring, this is a generation of children, and I talk about this when I'm talking to um, parents. This is a generation of children who actually has more information than you. Absolutely. And they may even be more knowledgeable than you. Yeah. What they don't have is the same level of 100% can Right, but they still know more than you, 
and they have more access to information. So they yeah. can fact check you two ways. One is do your own behaviors. And the other way is let me check and see if what he's saying or what she's saying is actually true and what somebody else Because I've had my son like do it to me, like literally go to Google and look at something to see if what I was saying, you know, was right. And I don't want to chastise them because that's what we're building them up to do. It's like always seek the yeah. truth. Right. And so don't expect that everything I say to you, you know, is truthful. But you told this story and I want to get into um, your son. But I was watching a video where you were speaking about your son. And in the middle of me crying, I just started laughing because I remember going into. So this nature of men and women when we go out into public spaces, right? And so when KJ used to go out with his mom, like she's always holding his hand. Like no matter what she's doing, she's proficient at holding his hand with her right and doing everything else with her left, right? Because she's holding on to him to make sure that he doesn't go anywhere. With me, the moment there's no danger, meaning we're out of the parking lot or we're anything else, I let go. And my, my connection and control over him is my presence and my voice and my instruction, mm -hmm. right? Which is for all of my kids was always, if you can't see me, I can't see you. And you can never not see me. But as a boy, again, my girls never did this, but why does my boy go in and underneath the clothing rack in the middle of it to hide from me? And now I'm frantically like losing my mind because I think somebody has snatched up. Uh, what? Please tell that story about your son in the stairs. Oh my um, goodness, that was. All right. So there was, again. <laughs> and I give him specific instructions, Kenneth. Do not go outside. Do not go outside the gate. Or if you do go outside the gate, make sure I can see you from outside of my window. Again, like the good little boy he is, he says, yes, daddy, I won't go outside the gate. So I'm inside and I'm doing what I'm doing. And I look out the window and I don't see him. I said, I say to myself, uh, he, he, he probably, he's just taking a little bit of freedom just to go a couple of steps around the, um, around the corner. So I look, he's not there. I look to the other side, he's not there either. And the last person I, the last person I want to alert is my, is his, his grandmother, because she's also going to take everything to DEFCON, DEFCON 11. <laughs> so I, I call out his name, Keelan, he's not answering. So I say to myself, I know that this young man hasn't taken his five-year-old self and gone round to, and gone round the corner without my permission. I know he understood what I said because he said, yes, daddy. So I go outside, I go around the corner and he's not there. So I come back and I said, I know that this boy did not take himself across the road to go to the park across the road. So I go across the road to the bigger park and I ask some of the boys that are around there, have you seen Keelan? Have you seen young Keelan? Say, no, 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 I haven't seen young Keelan. So now the, the anger is rising up, but it's, it's, mixed with, it's mixed with a little bit of trepidation. So I'm coming back home and like, a, again, I don't want to alert his grandmother. So I come back in and I, I say, Keelan, and I'm trying to say it without any desperation in my voice, but I say, Keelan, he's not around the corner and he's not at the park. Where is my boy? 
So now I have to tell. Now I have to alert his grandmother. And I, I try to do it in the softest way possible, Kenneth. Mom, have you seen Keelan? Immediately, no, where's Keelan? Mm. That's it. The whole house, the whole house is going frantic. Uh, I call my brother, brother, see if you can find Keelan in the back garden, check the back garden. You, you go outside and see if you can find him around the corner. You, you go up the road. Keelan, Keelan, Keelan. Keelan can't be found. So now my grandmother is saying, I'm calling the police. And I want to say, no, 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 no. He's going to turn up. But something in me is saying, well, at what point do you call police? It's at this point. It's so my grandmother's on the phone on the phone, and she's getting ready to call the police. And I make one last desperate attempt to call for my son, Keelan! I hear this tiny little cackling in my ears. I said, Keelan? So I'm, I'm trying to locate where this key is coming from. And my mother has got a little, a little trap door underneath the stairs. So I'm not, Keelan? Keelan's inside there and he's, he's in hysterics. So I open up and he's there looking up at me like so. So I grab the boy. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm just like, what on earth do you think you're doing? Didn't you, didn't you hear us calling you? You've sprightened us half the this. Get inside the front room and go and sit down. I had to give him a little tap, Kenneth. Mm -hmm. So he goes in and sits down and I calm everybody down. Okay, the boy's found, the boy's, boy's fine and everybody's relieved. But again, everybody's laughing because Keelan's been, all this time Keelan's been hiding underneath the stairs, driving us all crazy. So I, I calm down and I go in to the front room to, to have a serious father-son talk with my son to find out what on earth was he thinking? So I sit down and I said, Keelan, I thought you, I thought I lost you. I thought someone had come to take you. I, Keelan, I thought I was never going to see you again. Why didn't you answer me when I called for you? And he responded, I just wanted you to find me. I just wanted you to find me. Do you know what the lesson I learned that day, Kenneth? Mm. Besides the one that you heard before, the lesson I learned the Lord telling me, you know the reason why a lot of people don't come to me when I call for them? I said, what Lord, why? He said, because a lot of them think that I'm going to respond just like how you did. Mm. So they didn't come to me when I called first time. And then I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> I was broken, I was broken. And then, and then you know, I, I scooped up, I said, I was just like, all right, I, I'm never going to, I'm never going to lose you, son. I'm always going to be here. And you can always come to me when I call, always come to me when I call. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I when I shared this when I shared this story at his funeral, I made the call for young people. Like Keelan was found 
before he died. Mm. You know, the last thing, the last thing I, that was said to him, one of the last things that was said to him before he walked down the road and got and, and was, was stabbed, the last thing, one of the last things that was said to him was, make sure you accept Jesus Christ in your heart, you know, sir. A couple of weeks before he had seen his younger brother and sister get baptized. And he was like, oh, what am I doing? I'm getting baptized. And we were, we were having conversations. We were having conversations. We were having grown-up conversations. Yeah, I'm going, to be, I'm, I'm going to be baptized. Him and his fiance were planning to get baptized in our next baptism. And on his way to the shop, to the store, as he was leaving, my mum was like, make sure you accept Jesus Christ in your heart. And he was like, yeah, I've got you, mum. He would call my mum mum at the same time. I, I got you, I got you, mum. He didn't come back home that day, but he was found. He was found by his father of fathers. And that's one of the things I, I draw comfort from. And I know that's one of the things what my mom draws extreme comfort from. Her last words to her grandson was, make sure you have Jesus in your heart. How, what a precious gift mm. that is. What a precious gift that is. That, my, my, that was the last thing my believing mother, faithful, staunch, faithful Christian, that's the last thing she said to her grandson before he passed. You know, one of the things that I got out of that story um, came as a result of the work that I do specifically um, with fathers um, and fathers who have had a lack of relationship or no relationship with their fathers or some who lived in the same household with their fathers but lacked relationship. I go back to that little boy, right? And much of what we do as men um, when it comes to our fathers and much of what we want to hold him accountable for is finding us, right? And so when God says, I am a father to the fatherless, he is part of what we cry out for, to your point about putting that in your heart, saying, at least I've been found, Right? Now we can struggle with the manifestation of the biological finding, but the spiritual and emotional finding is just as important um, for us as men Absolutely. and girls for that matter. But I want you to walk me into that day um, that that happened, because I read a lot. I was searching, trying to find out you know, how it happened, because that wasn't very clear in some of the things that was there. Um, and then when I finally ran across something that said it, that he was actually stabbed, it, it just, my heart just ached for you. Um, I've had a chance in my career through my work to have conversations with men in this country who have lost notable boys, um, including Trayvon Martin's dad, um, spoke to him, interviewed him gave him an award for um, his perseverance um, and him standing in the space of being a black father when most people believe in America that our boys 
that are dying um, in un, um, these, these circumstances um, are fatherless boys. They're not. These boys have men in their lives. This is not a fatherless issue. Absolutely. Right? This, is a, this is something else. And Jordan, I um, can't remember Jordan's last name. So many of these boys, it's, it's ridiculous. But he lost his life in Florida um, at a gas station where this man thought he was playing his music too loud and decided that he was going to shoot and kill him in cold blood at the gas station. And many of these other dads had spoken about their, their mental state and their need to be able to be strong but be vulnerable at the same time. But before we get there, just tell us a little bit about that story. Like you were saying, it, this is far from a, a fatherless case. I was a single parent with, for my son for the first 13 years of his life. Um, it was us since he was three. It was me and him until I got remarried when he was 13. The, the bond between us is so strong. Uh, like, uh, apart from a period of time when he spent, he spent in Jamaica with his grandmother, and that was for about nine months, we were always together to the point where his secondary school education, I'm a teacher, I teach performing arts. Uh, he was my student from year seven to year 11. So I saw my son every day. When he had detention, I was probably one, I was one of the teachers that would give him detention. When, when it was, there was parents evening, he was sitting right next to me because I had to look at other people's parents. I had to speak to other people's parents and he had to stay there right with me. Lunchtime, he's in my room with his friends. After school, he's in my room with his friends. We walk to school together, we walk home together. So we're, we're, we are tight. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? So the day I'm on my way home from school, and this story is going to blow your mind when I tell you the full extent. I'm on my way home from school and I jump on the train. I jump on the train and he, he lives, he lives five minutes away from the train I have to jump on to get home. Um, so he no longer, he's, you know, he's an adult now, so he no longer lives at home. So I jump on the train to go home and he lives five minutes away from the train station. And I, I pass the first train station, I get to the second train station and a friend of mine, a brother of mine, a close brother of mine, he calls me and he's shouting, Jermaine, Jermaine, Jermaine. And I'm like, bro, what's, what's going on? Why, why are you calling out my name like that? What's, what's with the hype? Because he's not normally this hype. He goes, what's with the hype? He goes, Jermaine, Jermaine. I was like, talk, talk, bro. What's, what's going on? He goes, whatever you're doing, come off the train now, now. And I'm like, what's going on? And at first I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm thinking there's so much noise that's going on. What is this? Is, are you at a party? What, what's going on? Is it, whatever you're doing, come off the train now. Um, something's happened. And because of the area that I live in, this is, this is, that is, that is part of a message that I, I never want to hear. 
my mom will call me sometimes at odd hours and now I will get scared because I'm thinking, what are you calling me for? Is everything all right? Is everything all right? Is it the call that you never want to hear? I have brothers live in Brixton that live in the area. So my first reaction was, my first thought was, has something happened to my brother? Because my brother, you know, my brother wants to come out of the area. So my first reaction is, oh, I hope nothing's happened to my brother. What's happened? He goes, no, Keelan. I've just saw Keelan, he's been stabbed. I'm on the train, you know, Kenneth. I've got all these people around me. And I'm like, what? And everybody's looking at me and it just so happens, as soon as he said that the, the doors closed on the train and started to go to the next train station. So I have to, I have to wait till we reach the other train station, two stops away from where I just left. And I'm on the phone and I'm, he says, he's been stabbing, it doesn't look good. And immediately I say, that's the devil. The devil's trying to get me panicky and I'm not gonna panic, I need to be calm. I'm gonna go there, it's gonna be a stab wound and he's gonna go in the ambulance and I'm gonna soothe him and everything's gonna be okay. Him telling me, and I was a little bit upset. I was like, him telling me that it doesn't look good. I didn't need to hear that information because everything's going to be all right. I finally get off the train and I have to run. I run back to Brixton from where I get off. And while I'm running, my phone's ringing because obviously people are finding out what's happening. My phone's ringing and I don't want to answer, but sometimes I answer as I'm running. And I said, have you heard what's happened? I was like, yes, I know what's happened. I'll, I'll, I'll call you as soon as I get there, click. And I'm running, I'm getting tired. I'm, you know, I don't know if anybody else, I'm, I'm pretty sure someone else has experienced this, but you're running, you're getting so tired and then you're getting upset with yourself for getting tired because you just want to be there. You just need to get there. But your body, your, your, your breath, your lungs, it's, it's giving weight. So I'm running and I'm running, Kenneth, and then I'm, I'm stopping and I'm walking really fast. And in my head, I'm thinking, I might as, I'm hoping that I can find someone that I know in the area that can just jump in their car. I'm running, stopping and I'm running, and I finally get to the, finally get to the end of the road and I see all the commotion, the ambulance, and now the street is just piled up. It's, it's at the end of my, it's at the end of the road of where he lives. It's not, not some random place. It's, He's gone to the shop. He's gone to get something to eat from the pizza shop at the end of his rope. So I'm running and the place is taped off. I walk straight through and the police officer's trying to stop me and I say, no, no, that's my son, I need to be there. And he's, he's, he's stopping me, he's like, I understand, I understand, but you just need to let the doctors do what they're doing. So he's talking and then some of my family are behind the tape and I'm telling them, I'm telling to them and I'm telling them, you just, just pray everyone, okay? It'll be okay, it'll be okay, just pray. And they're crying and I'm, you know, I'm trying to hold it down for everybody. I look down and I see the knife, I see the weapon on the floor and I'm like, Jesus Christ. That weapon has got my blood, that weapon has got my son's blood all over it. 
And then I'm asking the officer, are you gonna give, what's the update, what's going on? What's, what's happening, what's happening with my son? And he's just, just, just wait a minute. And it gets to the point where I'm, I'm demanding, I was like, you, you need to tell me what's happening with my son. Because what started happening, I see the ambulance start to pack up. So I asked the officer, why is the ambulance packing up and my son's not going in? And he looks at me and I goes, why, why is the ambulance looking like they're packing up to go and my son's not in the ambulance? Why isn't, why is the rush, why is everybody seeing like there isn't a rush anymore? And he said, can you come with me, sir? And then they do what they do, don't they? They take me around the corner. And the words that you never want to hear, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Tuesday, the 23rd of October. Tuesday, the 3rd of October, 2023. Life changed. And, and you know, I, I know I'm not the only person, I'm not the only father that's lost a son. I, I understand that. But you have to understand, I, when I left, when I left school that day, I did not think that the student that I was teaching in my classroom that day wow. would be the student that is being charged for my son's murder. Wow. He sat beside me. And and this is and this is you was talking about passion earlier. The passion's different from talent, and I couldn't agree. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more than what, I couldn't agree with you more because passion um, is the fire that has been, mm. that has aroused in me now, Kenneth, because I love the boy because I'm his dad at school. He's sitting right next to me and I'm telling you, you're going mm -hmm. to pass this GCSE because I'm, I'm not gonna allow you not to pass your GCSE. I know that others can't stand you in their class, but when you're in my class, you thrive, don't you? Yes, sir, I know I do thrive. When you're in my class, I know I, I don't allow you not to concentrate, right? You can't get away, you get away with it in other classes, but in here, you're not gonna get away with it, right? Uh, focus, right? right? Focus, no one can't touch this kid in other class. No other teacher can't touch this kid. You can't tell this kid to sit down and him listen, but, but I'm his dad in school and I'm, he's there. He loves me. The other, the other student loves me. He came in, he came in that week. How you doing, sir? I'm all right, how are you? I'm fine. Oh, sir, can I, can I join your class to do drama, please? Oh man, you should have picked that. You should have picked it from last year. I can't just maneuver. Oh man. Really wish I could be in this class. Anyway, have a good day, sir. Those two left my class that day, not realizing 
not realizing that the person that they targeted was their teacher's son. So the passion now is, mm -hmm. Lord, what predicament, what, what predicament have you placed me in where the, the culprits, and there's three of them, the main culprit was someone I don't know, but he's only a year older than my son. So it's probably, so I've been teaching in that area for, for, since I was 16 years old. So I've been teaching for many, many years. I might not know him, but I know him. Or your family. I know somebody. Right. You know I'm saying I know somebody. I definitely know the other two younger ones that are with. What predicament have you placed me in, God? Because I love these guys, but these guys have taken my prince, my eldest. And now I'm, I'm passionate about this one. I'm passionate about this thing that is going to change, that is going to change youth violence in London. And this is what it is. Forgiveness. Mind surgery. Teaching young people how to rethink retaliation and to dispel the myth of vengeance and re retaliation, because that's the culture that we've all grown up in. Every Kung Fu film, every Kung Fu film, every John Wick, every, every, every one of those type of things is based on the premise of, you do something to me, I'm going to, get, I'm going to do something to you. And it's the fruit of unforgiveness. Wow. And the only way, mm -hmm. the only way to deal is to change the mindset and let people know that vengeance and retaliation is a lie because guess what? None of it is going to bring my son back to life. Right. Yeah, there are some brothers that I want to connect you with and I want to be a part of helping you do that. I don't know how, I don't know what, you know, we ain't that far, you know, it's quicker to get to you than it is for someone on the East Coast to get to California. So it's not... A matter of travel, it's a matter of, of uh, time and resources, right? And so a good friend of mine that I want to introduce, in fact, she's actually doing an event. I don't know if she's done it yet. I know I saw her talking about it a couple of weeks ago. She's actually doing an event in New York um, for um, fathers like yourself that's lost their children. She's actually doing an event. She has an organization called Urban Grief. I would love to be there. I interviewed, yeah, I interviewed her um, about three weeks ago on my podcast. She's a uh, Reverend Lisa Good. She's just an awesome soul, awesome, and she understands this thing from this kind of nuance of trying to explain and extract information on how men particularly deal with grief but one of the things that she said on the podcast which I had never heard before but clearly understood once she said it is that there's a difference between grief and mourning and that mourning is the outward expression of grief and so and what she was saying is that 
most men grieve, but they never mourn. Mm. Like grieving is managing the hurt and expressing the hurt. Mourning, mourning is celebrating the life. And she says most men never get to celebrating the life because they're grieving the death because they've suppressed it. And the more they suppress it, the harder it is to mourn. And she was talking about how important it was for men to go through both of those mm-hmm. processes. Um, I, I got to connect you with her. She is, you're talking about sharp. His sister is sharp. Um, and she drops. But your story in and of itself mirrors uh, something that happened to one of my best friends um, years ago. Um, his son was one of my mentees. Mm-hmm. Same exact thing. Um, went out one night, was doing what um, Shereem does, just hanging with his boys, bright, likable kid. Everybody loved them. Went to this these white guy's house up in upstate New York, and something happened at the house, and he was on the porch, and one of the guys grabbed him and snatched him into the house and they stabbed and killed them in the house um, and then threw them back out the house. Um, and they got away with it. They weren't charged um, with it. And so, um, you know, him and I, although we've been good friends for so, so many years, are intimately connected because I shared that, ex- you know, with my, you know, it wasn't my son, so I can't even begin to be, I can't even wrap my head around that. Um, but I buried his son with him. I walked through the process of everything from picking out the coffin to picking out his suit to, um, you, you know, just sitting in a corner, just being available for whatever, you know, he needed at that moment. And so that's why I believe I wanted you to tell that story because I believe talking about it is one of the therapeutic things we can do for men because oftentimes we don't have the outlet to even talk about what we've experienced because you don't really kind of know it sometimes until you hear yourself say it yeah right it's the power of the tongue like the power of the tongue is just not about speaking to others but it's about speaking to yourself And it is actually the mechanism that God actually prefers when you're talking to him, right? Use your tongue, speak out. Absolutely. Right? It's it's his preferred mechanism of communication. And men are less likely to do that. And we got to connect those dots together. Um, As you meet other um, men, and I'm sure you have, and other moms and other people who have lost our children to this, what? What's the first thing you tell them before you say my condolences or after you say my condolences? Um, what's the thing that you say to them that you want to resonate with them? Normally what people say to me, uh, there are no words. That's That's been the popular, that's been the popular introduction or the opening statement for when they want to express connection or when they want to express I'm with you 
or I feel for you. De lo siento. So that's normally the first thing, something along those sentiments is, I know there is no words, but know that I want to connect. Through my no words, through me saying that there's no words, know that that is my attempt to try and connect in some way, shape or form. Now, when I, when I meet people in similar situations, sometimes I don't need words. It's just this. Because that shared experience, we kind of know, we understand that, that there isn't really nothing you can say. Because deep down, what you want, you can't give. No one, no one can give me what I. No one can give me what I want. And you might not see tears, but it doesn't mean that I'm not crying. Uh, I, I'm crying right now. Uh, like you said, part of my mourning process is is being on podcasts like yours. Is is going on stage and and telling people to love their children or telling them that forgiveness is the way forward. That is part of my mourning process. And people, you know, sometimes people don't understand that, but that act of giving and forgiving is one of the mechanisms, is one of the things that gives me peace. Right, but it's also one of those things when we talk about, um, in a podcast I was doing um, before, we were talking about, Talents again. We were talking about talents and the way that we uh, accumulate talents and what those things look like, and where we gather our life learning experiences. And why am I exactly doing this again? And why am I that? Don't really connect with what I know my passion is. But for mm-hmm. you, through my own eyes looking at you, the artistic side of you was a gift in order for you to mourn this situation because you get to express it in ways that resonate with people other than just having a direct conversation through your movies, through your spoken word. Talk a little bit about how this has impacted that side of you, your artistic side. Like how have you leaned into this, particularly and um, uh, incorporate into this, the whole notion of learn to live. Wow. So it's funny. About a month, maybe three weeks prior to the inst- to my son being murdered, I finished writing. I put the full stop on my my latest play, my latest theatrical play. It was called. It is called Our Son. Can you believe that? Wow. It was it, and the play. The premise of the play is about forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> Three weeks before it happened, I, I, I finished writing a play called Our Son, and the whole premise is about forgiveness. And the, 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 the scenario is a father who has not seen his son for 10 years 
and his son turns up at his door wanting artifacts. And the whole play goes through flashbacks of why, why the relationship with him and his mom broke down and so forth. And, you know, they finally get to a place where they explore forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what the whole play is about. Almost like it was a prophecy. Mm. It's almost like something like the Lord, when he downloaded it in and used my talents to kind of put it there and to document it on people. So now it's, it's, in, it's in the earth. It's, it's out mm. here. It's almost like, yeah, you're going to need, you're going to need to express that. You're, not, you're going to need to use that as part of Keelan Wong's legacy. You're going to need to use that to teach people how to learn to live because forgiveness and the passion that this is going to arise in you, the forgiveness, uh, forgiveness is going to be a major part of how people learn to live. It's going to be a major part of the mind surgery. It's going to be a major part of a new mindset and a new heart transformation that young people are going to need in order to change the culture of youth violence. You're going to need that. So that is, that is part of the plan, that play, Our Son. And it's funny, I was trying to get that, I was trying to get that into some theaters before you know, and as a theatre maker, as a filmmaker, you know, you have to source funding, you have to do this, you have to do that. Um, and it was making traction and I, I, I sourced the area, I sourced the, a venue and I was just like, oh, all right, so when, um, when we get some other things in place, yeah, this thing is going, this thing is going on. 2020, um, this thing is going on. We're going to do the planning. Come 2024, boom, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. Yeah. Let me know. Um, I don't know how. Boom, boom. But when you it's going to happen. I want to be there, and I want to help as much as I possible on this side. I don't know. Whatever you do over there, we got to bring it over here. Um, these stories and narratives yeah. um, must be told. You know, that's the artistic side of me that always burns, which is, you know, why I became a documentarian. There's so many stories in my head that I want to tell, and I listen to so many people. And so many stories of other folks that I want to tell and see. And I think that there's a need for the bombardment of our narratives in our space. Um, My good friend David Miller um, always says that as long as the um, hunter is writing a story, the narrative of the lion will never be heard. Um, (laughs) That it is upon us to tell our stories in a way that those stories resonate with us and in a way that those stories need to be heard um, by others. So I encourage you, and I will stay on top of you to encourage you not to um, let that go, um, to, 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 yeah. to, to, to make that happen. I mean, I just downloaded the other day. I was telling them um, I had, I don't know how God works with you on your artistic side, but with me, like I'll wake up or go to sleep or I'll be somewhere and he'll like just bombard me with this thought in my head and I can't think about anything else. And I just keep playing it like a broken record in my head and it doesn't disappear until I put it on paper. Like that's how I have to get it out of my head. And I wrote this poem. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I always stop short of saying it's a poem because I don't consider myself a poet, but it was in poetic form. And I wrote this thing in like 10 minutes and it was actually called Enough. Um, because moving into 2024, <clears throat> one of the things that I want to begin to start talking to passion-driven people about is this whole notion of enough. And what is 
your punctuation after enough in your life because a period says you've had enough, nothing else. <clears throat> a comma says enough, something else. A question mark says enough, yeah. I don't know. So what is your punctuation in your life after enough? And how do you resonate with that? And that's what the whole poem piece, I haven't released it to the public yet because I'm still playing around with how I actually want to roll this out mm -hmm. into the space. I want to actually go out and start speaking about this in spaces um, because I think that in, so the, con not contradicting, but in the contrast of what you were talking about with respect to your son and then this young man who's in your classroom, on one side of the tragedy is the loss of your son but on the other side of the tragedy is the perpetration by someone who looks like us, who is probably lost in some way as well. Can't be um, exonerated because of his action, but has to be thought of, has to be given to some, given some consideration as to um, Oprah Winfrey. <clears throat> I was interviewed by her about three years ago um, for a thing that she did called um, Honoring Our Kings. And one of the things that she did is she sent me a book, like after the taping of the show, just came to me in the mail and I opened it up and I'm like looking at this book and Oprah's signature is in there and she wrote a note to me. But the book was called, What, what Happened to You? And she was saying to me that in your work, it's going to be important for you to not only ask the question, what did you do? but it is more important to ask the question, what happened to you? Because we all know what you did, <clears throat> but we all don't have the um, patience to explore what happened to people, right? Mm -hmm. And because, and so your point about um, really finding ways to eradicate youth violence or at least slow it down enough or, or change the pattern of it, any of those things, I think one of the critical questions in doing that and talking to our youth, particularly the ones that engage in that behavior, is the work of dealing with what is happening to them. Why? Yeah. It's the programming. It's the programming. Programming of the output. When you put an input into a, a program, computer system, you're going to get an output. It's about what's going in, in the mind, the culture that we've grown up on, the, the, the high R's, the, 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 the clock backs, everything that we grew up on. Growing up, it was, you killed my father, you killed my brother. You go off and you learn the Kung Fu style, the drunken style, mm -hmm. and you go back and you, you take care of business. And that is, that is the myth of vengeance. That is a myth of retaliation. Because at the end of the day, even though he goes back up, he goes back and you feel that sense of satisfaction, that sense of relief, it's a lie. It's an oasis in a desert. It's a lie because the brother doesn't get right. back up after you've, right. after you've done it. Son, my son is not going to get back up after you've done it. And every statistic shows, every piece of research shows, when you do engage in that, the trauma doesn't mm. lessen, the trauma increases. 
how you deal with your life doesn't how you deal with your life doesn't get easier with your retaliation it gets actually gets harder with your retaliation so it's actually a myth it's actually a lie so we have to change the input in order to to get a new output and for me 100% i believe for me it's it's about teaching forgiveness but i'm not talking about any type of forgiveness you know kenneth i'm not talking about forgiveness that foregoes retribution I'm not talking about forgiveness that buries its head underneath the sun. I'm not talking about a forgiveness that makes everything okay and doesn't hold the violator to account. I'm not talking about that type of forgiveness. I'm talking about the forgiveness that rejects retaliation because it chooses to march mm. forward to imagine a brighter future. Forgiveness, forgiveness is a choice to make past violations wow. livable. And on that note, Brother Jermaine, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. And as my um, board chair um, always says, you know, I love you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Um, he's that he's that dude. <laughs> he is that dude. Um, and I didn't even talk to you. I have to bring you back on and bring with to some other brothers to kind of talk about this forgiveness because we also have a good friend of mine who is steeped in that work around um, forgiveness. I want to share his contact information. Um, he has an incredible, I have not, I need to get him on my podcast. He just actually came from over there speaking. So somewhere he was over there speaking. Um, same thing happened with his son, he lost his son to um, a friend of his, uh, murdered his son. And he actually went to the prison some years later to actually forgive the boy for killing his son. It was on, I don't know if it was on CNN, but it was, it was covered when it happened, he went in. And so now he does this thing around the world talking about the, um, the strength and powerfulness of forgiveness. I wanna share that with you because he's a incredible dude um, that's, you know, unfortunately, had that tragedy happen in his life, but have figured out how to now use his talents and his artistic space to forward that conversation, you know, to help heal others. And so, man, I appreciate you. Um, thank you so much for all you do. Um, my condolences and to your point, I have no words. I really don't. I mean, this is all I could do right now, right? This is all I could do. And, and yeah. And so I it, to all I of my, it, um, I am that podcast yeah. listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, my new brother, Jermaine Wong, he's over in the UK in London, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to kind of connect and do some work together. Um, but you know how I like to leave you always be kind to others as you're kind to yourself, or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals, because even if you miss, you'll be amongst the stars. And as my good friend, Art Mitchell and mentor always used to say to me, it's nice to be important, but it's much more important to be nice. Till next Sunday, peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. 
I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.